I've been thinking a lot about kind of a series, and it's, I think it's on the screen, I don't know, called Grace and Forgiveness. And what's really driving this for me, so we're, this week we're, we're doing grace, next week we're doing forgiveness, but we're, we're jumping into kind of a two-week series on grace and forgiveness. And, and it's really reflecting and realizing that the desire, the, the hope for I think any teacher or pastor or whatever is that we'd get up here and we would somehow change everybody. Our words would be so amazing, powerful, wise, whatever. It would literally like change you guys, you know. Uh, we started Antioch, you know, to fix you and you failed, just so you know. Um, you guys are still really messy. But but what you realize as a, when you're speaking is uh, you don't change people. Like, it's not the wisdom of words. It's not a well-crafted anything. It's not a joke. <laughs> Radically alter somebody li- somebody's life. It, and you begin to go, well, so what, what really does change people? What is changing people? And the answer to that is grace. Grace is the thing that transforms or changes human hearts. Grace is love in weaponized form. And love is the most powerful thing in the world. And I've really been wrestling with this. Like, man, what really changes people, what really changes us, is grace. And so I've had this hunger to just kind of reflect on and talk about and wrestle with grace. And then what comes out of grace, one of the things that comes out of grace is this idea of forgiveness. So we'll kind of get to that tonight, next week. So that's kind of where I'm going with this, is this, this desire to wrestle with what actually really changes us. And what I've realized as I've been thinking through this is that my biggest problem, my greatest problem with people is uh, <laughs> it's that I expect them to be who they're not and do what they can't. The relational strife I have or when I'm sideways with a person or when I just begin to get frustrated or dislike a person or impatient with a person, it's because I expect them to be who they're not or do what they can't. I have a standard that's, that's logical and it makes sense. This is how things ought to be. It's how they should operate. It's whatever. And they, they fail. They're not... Things creeping me out. Why is that shaking? Um, the, uh, do you guys hear it? It's like shaking on its own. Um... My wife tells me not to be weird when I'm preaching. And then when I, when I do, I begin to feel like a failure. Like, oh, no, I did it. And I'm going to hear about it when I get home. Grace, yeah. So, <laughs> so honestly, though, I mean, think about it. Um, the guy at work that just is always getting to you or, or person in your family or whatever, you, it just gets you because they're not who they should be and they're not doing what they ought to. And, and I began to realize that chunk of the greatest problem in my life with people is the, is the void that grace operates in, right? So anyways, I've really been hungry to kind of talk about this. And so I want to I wanna start big and kind of paint a, a very broad picture and, and kind of at a conceptual level and then begin to dial it down and then next week we'll get more specific with forgiveness. But I kind of, 
I need to first see if this will work. Is this going to work? Yeah, okay. Uh, so, so bear with me here. I don't know who made up the phrase thinking caps. I used it in the first service, and I was like, what does that even mean, thinking caps? Um, but put your thinking caps on, if you will. Just kind of bear with me, but we'll intellectualize this a little bit just because I think it's important to pull different themes together that we, we have kind of un- disconnected, and that makes it hard, I think, to really understand how this all just really works together. But justice, the word justice, and this concept of justice really simply means to be in a right relationship with God and others. The simple definition of justice is to render to someone what is due them. Okay, to render what is due. And but what that basically means is, is we render to God what is due God and we render to others what is due them. And, and when we do that, there's equity, there's harmony, there's balance in those relationships. Uh, a just society is when a society is in harmony and in balance and what ought to be in the give and take in relationships is in the give and take in relationships, okay? So to render to people what is due literally means to be in a right relationship with God and others. The interesting thing about this is there's a huge overlap with the word righteous or righteousness. Because the, the definition for righteous or righteousness that you've, you may or, or whatever have always heard is to be in a right relationship with God in a right relationship with others. To do righteous deeds is to do the deeds that a right person would do. To be righteous is to have right standing with God and others. And it begins to feel a little bit synonymous. And, and this is kind of one of the great, crazy things, I think, of, of, of language and, and how recent kind of understanding of Scripture has gone. And that's, we've, we in our minds hook these words separately. Justice is about, like, doing mercy and helping the orphan and the widow. Righteousness is about morality, in our minds, about morality and personal purity. Is that fair? Like, is that kind of how it hits our guts? Okay. The, the reality is these two things share all this, this space and this overlap to the degree that the Hebrew word, the primary Hebrew word for justice, sadiq, is also the word for righteousness. And the Greek word for justice, diakasune, is also the word for what? Isn't that crazy? So when in your New Testament... When you see justice or righteousness, it's the same Greek word, diakasune. What, what then leads the translators to translate one as justice and one as righteousness? Well, in American thought, we have a, a little bit more of a narrow conception of justice, a little bit more of a legal kind of conception, and, and focused in a little bit more of the courts and that kind of thing. And so the context will lead the translators to translate one use of uh, diakasune as justice. And then when it has to do a little bit more with our kind of uh, mor- morality or our ethical positioning, our standing before God, our goodness as a person, so to speak, the context leads translators to translate that as righteousness, which comes ways back from the German wor- uh, root word of recht, which, which is like a, a right relationship, a right standing to be oriented in a certain way towards 
your fellow man. Uh, it's not just personal piety or personal purity. It really is a right standing which necessitates the other. You can't, can't be in a right standing if there's no referent. Does that make sense? Okay. So the word righteousness has, has morphed to be really taken as personal purity or morality. At least that, when I was growing up, that's the way it hit my ears. And justice is, is kind of thin over here. However, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, it's the same word. We just use context to kind of spread it out. So it's a really fascinating thing when we're talking about this right relationship with God and others. So when we sin, we, we literally are being unjust. We're not being just, right relationship with God and others. We're being the opposite of that. We're being unjust, which means we're not rendering to God what is due God or to our fellow man what is due to our fellow man or to animals what is due animals or we could keep going. But we're being unjust and we've done an injustice. To act uh, justly or to promote justice or to advocate for justice is to fight against the unjust and to try to fix injustices, to bring things back into harmony or equity so that they exist in this just relationship where things are in a right relationship with God and each other. Okay, you get that? Okay, so... When we're in this state, which is the state of sin, we've transgressed, we've violated commands, we've, we've not worshipped God as we ought, we've not followed God, we've turned and gone our own way. Selfishness is choosing self over God and self over others. And we're really good at it, by the way, in America. By the way, uh, so we're back to school shopping for my kids. And we're, there's, a, there's a girl's clothing store called Justice shows you it's a good brand name these days, right? So there's a girl clothing store called Justice. I'm really bored. I hate shopping. It reminds me when I was a kid, my mom would take me to the fabric store. And it's like worst memories ever, right? So I'm sitting in the store, I'm bored, and I look at, there's a rack, and there's t-shirts hung, and you can see the inside tag. And they've got printed Justice on the inside tag, and then like a, like a little slogan. And so I kind of look closer, and the slogan was... Um, There's two, and I can't remember the one. Um, one was love yourself, and the other was be an individual. That's what it was. So I look at it, and I'm like, wait a second. And I'm thinking about the sermon. I'm like, justice really is right relationship with God and right relationship with others. Here's justice on this girl's pink shirt, and it says, um, what did I just say it said? And what was the other one? Be, um, be independent. Um, or no, be an individual. Be an, that's what it was. So it's be an, indivi be an individual. <laughs> Justice means love God, love others. You know, Be an individual. It's all about image. It's all about self, right? And I was like, what? And so I look at the next t-shirt. It's this navy blue one, and it's got white, so it really jumps out. It says, Justice, made in Vietnam by kids in child slavery. <laughs> love yourself. And I'm like... This is the most ironic justice moment of my life. Almost as ironic as when I was in, in Pirates of the Caribbean at, at Disneyland and it said, um, auction, buy a wench for a bride. And it had all these women literally roped together in shackles being auctioned off. And I'm like, I'm like my kids floating by, I'm like, that's sex trafficking. Like in Disneyland, like what is, what is this, you know? Um, so then, like, you know, a couple days later, it's love yourself, justice. Um, 
where was I? Uh, <laughs> selfishness, which we do really well, is the opposite of righteousness. It's the opposite of justice, okay? Sin really has a lot to do with the motivations of selfishness and the violence it does to the relationships and the unity that should exist and does exist when we're, when we're just, okay? And justice, when you have justice, heaven someday, the Old Testament talks about, about it through the word shalom. Our English word peace is the absence of conflict. The Hebrew word shalom is the presence of goodness, it's, it's where everything's flourishing, where everything's the way it ought to be. So when justice exists and righteousness exists, what comes about and grows is this shalom. And that's really what things point to, is this, this shalom where we're in right relationship with God and others and things are flourishing the way things ought to be. So sin, motivated by selfishness, does violence to this and it offends those that you owe something to. And... You injure them. And when we sin, we end up down here. And the interesting thing is, the key word here is debt. We incur a debt. Listen to this. So if you want to turn there, you can. Luke. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. I'll just, I'll, I'll try and read this big chunk fast so we don't get, but it's a big chunk Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It says this, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. It's not Western. They don't sit the way we do. It's reclining, living room kind of a thing. And when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. So a woman who's not invited to a house probably never been in that house, doesn't have a relationship with these dudes because they're like upper class and she's a sinner, barges her way into this thing because she knows that Jesus is there. Barges her way in, brings perfume, dumps it on Jesus. Now, perfume for us is like all about adding something that smells good. In that culture, it was all about covering something that didn't smell good. It was a really important thing and it cost a lot and it was valuable especially for a woman. Um, it's a tie to her beauty and everything else. So she brings in the symbol of her pride in some sense and, and this thing that is of great value to her, dumps it on Jesus' feet, cries, and is, and is wetting Jesus' feet with her tears. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So if Jesus knew if he was a prophet and not just a small town guy, he'd know what was going on. So I don't know if I really respect this guy anymore. Like he's not getting this. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both question, now which of them will love him more? So two people owe someone something, and the guy says, I'll just wipe it clean, of these two people that owed, one owed a lot, one owed a little, which of these two people is going to be filled with passion or love or appreciation for the person who canceled the debts? The one that owed him a lot or a little? 
And Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus says, you have judged correctly. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, which a good host would have done, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. There's something really fascinating in this passage. One, what word does Jesus use for sin? Debt. Debt, right? In the, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our... We're going to look next week at Matthew 18 where it's a whole parable of forget the king forgiving debts and the servant then not in turn forgiving debts and this whole concept of debts is going on. There's a monetary, literally a, the, the word debt expresses it, an indebtedness that sin brings with it. Because justice renders to you what's due. If I render to you something that you didn't deserve or does harm to you or withhold doing good, um, sin is, the interesting thing James tells us, sin is not just doing bad, it's knowing the good you ought to do and not doing it. There's this sin of inaction, not just harming somebody, but, but withholding what you should have given. That's the whole parable of the Good Samaritan. You see these religious guys go by. They didn't beat the dude up, but they withheld what they could have done or should have done in rendering to that person what was due him if they understood the reciprocity of love. You do unto others what you'd have them do unto you. So there's this idea of when we sin, we don't render what is due. There's, there's this, we now owe. We become indebted. We have a debt, literally. And so we end up in this position of being unjust or having injustice, and we have this debt. That's the first thing I want to pull out of this passage, and, and I want to pull out the second one here, and that's this. He or she who's been forgiven much loves much. The greatest danger to you if you've never really sinned big. See, the interesting thing for me is I envy people who haven't messed up as many things in their life because what I've begun to realize about sin is it's got a long tail. It's got a long tail. Sins I've committed in my life, I I still am going to have to make payment on the consequences of those into the future. It's not all done yet. I could get more specific, but I got a daughter in here. Um, I envy you if you've been a better person than me all along. However, the greatest potential problem you face because you've been good is to not recognize your need for grace to not experience forgiveness as awesomely as you should and that that would lead to a degree of you thinking your goodness is your own, your righteousness, right standing with God and others, is your own and that in that you become self-righteous. The sin of the Pharisee 
is not in being uber bad, but that they misinterpret their goodness to the degree that they don't understand the need for grace. Does that make sense? Jerry Root, one of my professors, he's going to be here in January speaking at Antioch. He's a professor at Wheaton. He's a C.S. Lewis scholar. Uh, You've probably heard me say this before. I took a phrase he always says and have dwelt on it for years and years, and it's really shaped a lot of my thinking. But Jerry Root says this. He says it all the time. There's two kinds of people in the world. Those who are goofy and know it, and those who are goofy and don't know it. And they're dangerous. And I, I, and I kind of, first time I heard that, I was like, ah, what do you mean, Jerry, what do you, what do you mean by that? And the more I reflected on it, I began to realize the sin of self-righteousness is to be goofy and not know it. To not know your own warpedness. So I began to, in my mind, picture it the way uh, caricatures are at Disneyland. That there's, there's what things really are, and what a caricature does is, is takes a flaw or something like that, accentuates it, and makes it kind of goofy, right? And so it's like, you know, big chin or a big nose or big ears or big hair. It's like, hey, it's not the 80s anymore, you know, but we'll draw your big... And it's a caricature. And anyone who sits in front of an artist at Disneyland, they can make a caricature of, of you. They're good at it, right? We are caricatures, there's no one of us that gets it all the way right. Now, your characteristic flaw might be different than mine. But when I understand my own flaw, I can walk in and go, you got big ears, I got a big nose, it's all good. I'm, I'm goofy, and I know it. And that gives me the ability to see your goofiness and, and be okay with it. Now, if I think I'm perfect or it's all good with me, and then I come in, it's like, ah, big ears. Who let that person in? You know, how do we, how do we kick them out of the fraternity? Um, we begin to, to create a distinction, separate ourselves out, and make them less than us, less good than us, because we're good. So the hard thing for people that are good is that sometimes you can miss grace. People like Paul, the apostle of grace, Paul's killing Christians. And then he has what we call now the road to Damascus experience, which is, which is literally in, in a literary device now. Like it, from his testimony, he has this radical conversion on the road to Damascus. So in, in culture or literature, you can hear the phrase, a road to Damascus experience, which literally stands for um, a radical transformational event in your life, about face. And Paul's all the way over here and is radically saved out of this to over here and it, of nothing of his own doing. And he now understands this goodness I have is not of me. It's the, it's, I've been forgiven much. I was extended grace. And he now loves much, is committed much, is passionate about it. So it's, it's a fascinating thing. One of the things that, the, probably the only thing I value about my past life is this. I know that the grass on the other side of the hill isn't greener. I used to hang out over there. And it's not greener. And so it's easier for me sometimes than other people to kind of see that sin 
is an illusion. It's cotton candy. It's a mirage. There, it promises everything and delivers nothing. The one good thing about my testimony is I'm perfectly content obeying God. And the, and the satisfaction and the joy that comes from being in this right relationship, I don't, I already know that's bankrupt. It's, but so there's this aspect of grace and forgiveness and debt going on. Let's table that for just a second. So we come back to this. If we're still drawn. We, we still drawn? Yeah. So we have this debt. How do you pay off injustice? There's a couple ways. So one way is what we call punitive justice. Can you see that? What's punitive justice? We punish you. You, you did something, you committed a crime, and an injustice has happened, and so we're going to punish you. We know this in the idea of I want my revenge, I want justice, I want harm done to that person so they feel the pain they caused me. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, punitive justice. It pays the debt, but notice it, it has no power to restore the relationship. Do you get that? There's another way restitution or restorative justice. And what's that? You pay it back, right? So a high school kid drives through a fence and the dad's like, you're going to go rebuild the fence and I'm going to teach you that when you mess something up, you fix it, right? You stole something from someone, you're going to pay it off until the value is, is there and you've, you've in some sense given restitution to what you've done. Does that make you get that? Interesting thing in America is we're really good at punitive justice. We're really bad at restorative justice. So in America, we have 8% of the world's population and 25% of its inmates. We love incarcerating people and punishing them. We don't do a good job of saying, yeah, you owe somebody something and you need to pay it back. Um, insurance companies do that. You know, like, the store gets robbed. Yeah, it's the insurance that pays it back, but this guy gets punished, you know. But we're really good at punitive justice, really bad at restorative justice. Now, here's the interesting thing. Does restorative justice necessarily restore the relationship? Because it doesn't, the, restore, the restoration of the relationship doesn't hinge on the paying back, does it? The restoration of the relationship hinges on the person who was injured. Choosing to accept back into fellowship the one who wronged him or her. Did you get that? It's really interesting, isn't it? So, punitive justice does justice, but it doesn't fix everything. Restorative justice does justice, doesn't necessarily fix relationship. What's the third way? Third way is grace. What's the definition of grace? Unmerited favor. Favor, grace, that you don't deserve and you didn't earn. It's, it's, here, here it is. And it pays back your debt and lifts you back up into this 
standing of relationship and unity and restores you. There's a, an economic sense to grace that, that we Protestants miss. The Catholic Church get, well, we'll get in thicky, thin waters. Um, let's just talk about the Latin, so not talk about the Catholic Church. The Latin phrase for, for grace, the word for grace is gratia. If you go to Florence, you'll see the Medici church that they built for themselves, which is just as big as the Catholic church. But the, the, Medici, uh, the Medici chapel in Florence literally has the phrase Ave Maria Gratia Plentia above it, inscribed above it. Hail Mary, full of grace. Ave Maria Gratia Plentia. And the idea here is that Mary is full of grace. It's a doctrine of Mary in the Catholic Church that when the angel said you're full of grace, it was as if she has more grace than she ever needs for her own debts. If she had debts, she doesn't have debts. But she has all this extra uh, resource, grace. And so when you pray to Mary, you ask Mary something, you pray to saints, you're literally hoping or asking that out of their excess, they would extend grace to you, grace that would help pay down your debt for you so that your debt will, will go away and you can then be debt-free. And so there's the indulgences that were sold around the time of the Protestant Reformation. It was, it was all buy this indulgence from the Catholic Church and we'll apply it in some sense to your sin the way we would apply it against your bank account if you had debt. So there's a very, very much an economic sense going on kind of in this culture. We, we miss some of that in the Protestant church. But we have a debt. What does it say in Romans 3.23? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're, we're down here. We've got this debt. And then the very next thing is this. Yep, we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. We are justified, made just again. We are justified freely by His grace, the grace that came through Jesus Christ. Grace makes us just. It pays our debt. It cancels our debt. It forgives our debt. Grace forgives debt. Why do we need to talk about this? One, we need to understand it for salvation. That our standing with God is, is because of grace. There's two senses that, that the word grace is used in Scripture. One is this one that really is by His grace, God is giving unmerited favor and restoring us into a relationship. We now have this relationship with God again, sons and daughters, where we were estranged from Him because of our sin. So there's this very much a salvation sense of grace, that our identity because of the grace of God. The other sense of grace has to do with, like, strength. Out of the grace given you, serve others. Or by God's grace, I have the strength or the ability to go in and serve or preach the gospel, says Paul, etc. And so grace justifies us 
and grace sustains and strengthens us. Does that make sense? But we have to understand grace because if we don't have this, which puts us back into this position, we have nothing to give. We make a mistake with forgiveness. I make a mistake. I realized it this week. I make a huge mistake with forgiveness. When I'm teaching my daughters, we're really good at anything goes wrong. You, you say you're sorry. You say I forgive you. It, I mean, you can't get out of my house if you've done something wrong without that happening. But I think or have thought that the biggest part of it was, was the person asking for forgiveness. And the person that actually said, I forgive you, that was just kind of like a tack on at the end just to wrap it up nice and clean. But I, I thought the real ball game was the, the person asking for forgiveness. You know that 75% of the times the word forgiveness is used in Scripture, it has to do with which side of the, the equation? It has to do with this side. It has to do with the person who's choosing to forgive somebody their, uh, their trespass, their transgression, and invite them or restore them back into relationship. Why is that a big deal? Because I've begun to realize forgiveness is radical. It is so radical because there is an injury that has taken place against you who you care about. And <laughs> this person has to pay. They have to know what I felt. They have, to, they have to hurt too. It has to be fixed. How can I give them something they don't deserve? And they haven't earned, and they might, they might not even understand. I, I have to work on this situation to the, to, to the point where the person gets what they did to me. Do you know what that gossip did to me? Do you know what, 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 do you know what that, you know how you've hurt me? I, I can't gloss this over because there's, there's a breach here. You are messed up. You're goofy. And until we fix the goofiness, we can't have relationship here. <laughs> How do I extend undeserved, unmerited favor, grace, into that vacuum with the boss that fired, the spouse that cheated, the drunk driver that killed? I, in and of myself, don't have the power for that. And we make a, a grave mistake. I make a grave mistake. Pastors make a grave mistake in America. We, we start everything with you. Your desire for your insecurities to be fixed or healed, or your desire to grow and become bigger and better and greater, and your desire for pain to go away, your desire to know more, but we always begin with you growing out of that position and having more abundance because that's what we want, right? We're selfish. 
we don't start where the Puritans started. And they always started with sin. Our sin. They were, they were always, every one of their prayers, every one of their hymns, every one of their sermons, they would always start with our sin. Our sin. That is grave and has offended a holy God and deserves punishment and separation. Our sin that has been forgiven freely through God's grace. And now justifies us in this awkward kind of way. I'm, I'm in the locker room of the NFL, uh, like a, of the Cowboys. I don't belong there. I don't have any muscle. <laughs> what am I doing here? You know, I've been invited into somewhere I don't belong. I have grace. I'm now just. I'm not just. I mess things up. I mess people up all the time. How am I now just or righteous before God? We start with sin and then forgiveness and grace through Christ. And then all of a sudden it's like, how can I judge you? You know what? I had in college plenty of beers too many and could have killed somebody. Who am I to, you know, I've gossiped. Uh, yeah, it's pain and it's sin and we're all messed up and we're all goofy. And I'm not guilty of this one today. You are. But you know what? Let me show you the grace God showed me because this is the only way we're going to fix this problem called sin. The only thing that can change this messed up society is grace. It's not punishment. And you can never pay it back. So the, the, the big Catholic split, one of the big things the Catholic split with the Protestants was the idea that we could work our way back into a right standing. Paul called that works. And so he says this in Galatians. You who are trying to be justified, to become just by the law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. We realize, man, I can't work my way there. Neither can you. We're in this together, and it's a good thing that we have grace. And as I try to well up the ability to forgive you this, this violence you've done against me, this debt that you owe against me. And I don't want to. It begins to make me realize how great this salvation is that I have in God and what grace really is. And that motivates me and it drives me. Aristotle called the first thing, the first principle, the unmoved mover. Everything in the world is billiard balls, you know. It's bouncing off each other. Well, where did it all get started? And for Aristotle, he called it the unmoved mover, you know, and, and later Christian theologians would pick up on that and say, yeah, God's the unmoved mover. He's what gets it started. And when we talk next week about forgiveness, I don't have it in me. If you really injure me to give you undeserved grace, I don't have it in me. I'll tell you a lot of things I have in me. I have, the, I have it in me to slice and dice you and exact my revenge. I don't have it in me to sacrificially lay down my life, absorb the harm, and allow you to then re-enter into fellowship with me. But because of grace for me, it gets the process going. I'm, I'm goofy and I'm, I'm a caricature of you Christ, I don't belong in the locker room. 
yet you forgave my debt. I'm a, I'm, I get to now do good works. See, this is the, the difference. We don't do good works to earn justice. We do good works because we become just. Grace makes us just, and it's like, man, I want to promote justice. I want to do what's right. I want to help the poor. I want to help the orphan. I want to help the widow. I want to restore things. I care about it all being together because I see how it's good, and it's a part of God's plan and how he's brought me into this. I want to, I want to do what I see my father doing, and, and that has begun a chain, and the movie Pay It Forward, it, it pays itself forward. Grace begets grace. Give me um, four quick minutes and we'll wrap up. I want to, I made a couple people in the first service leave Antioch over it, so hopefully you guys will give me grace. Um, but the, we have to heal a divide that, that, that erupted in the last hundred years between righteousness and justice. And John Stott called the first part of the problem, the great reversal. We always understood that when grace makes us just, we naturally, when we're in this right relationship with God and others, want to help build hospitals and help orphans and help the poor. That I can't go too far in my relationship with God without the other coming along too. Does that make sense? These two things are tied together, righteousness and justice. And so Christians had always been at the forefront of, of this amalgam of, of righteousness and justice and this relationship of these two things. The great reversal happened after the social gospel. The social gospel, we have no ability to even understand it because it happened in a vacuum of societal things, you know, where, where um, death rates in birth for women were horrible. There were no regulations on business. I mean, the, the work days, child labor laws, minimum wage didn't happen until the 1930s. And you have these slums and you have immigrants coming in and there's just such difficult urban squalor on the heels of urbanization or industrialization. And we can't even fathom it. We've benefited in some sense from a lot of these changes. But you had a group of guys that came in and said, there's a social ethic here. There's a, my fellow man and his suffering that's such a part of my relationship with God and my understanding of grace that we have to to advocate on behalf of this, okay? There was another component, however, where they adopted liberal theology, which was rising in the late 1800s and then continued in the early 1900s. And so for us, we just go social gospel bad. We don't have the ability to go, let's hold on to the good and let go of the bad, which is what I feel like mature people always try to do. What Paul counseled Timothy, hold on to the good, let go of the bad. The social ethic of, of, of that movement was amazing. The theology of that movement, I have incredible problems with. And so we say social gospel bad. You kind of have to go, man, they did some amazing things on behalf of people in the name of Christ. However, I really disagree with their theology. In this whole thing, though, you had a divide erupt, a battle, and in any fight, what happens? You go to opposite extremes. So never in a boxing match are you going to see the bell ding for like the round being over. Two chairs get put in the middle of the ring and the, and the, the two guys sit back to back. I mean, can you picture that? How, how crazy that would be? You go to opposite corners. Why? Because you're fighting each other. And so Stock called it the great reversal that in this whole kind of fight, what, what conservatives 
conservatives did was they began to see love and justice talk as belonging to liberal theology and talk about Jesus and the king as belonging to, and salvation, as belonging to conservative theology. And you see this great divide. And in that, when, when conservative theology had always brought about a care for the orphans and widows, now conservative theology, to some degree, lost that. The idea of justice and hang, hung on to righteousness. The second one, and this is where I think I chased somebody off. Forgive me. The second part of this shift came in, in um, 79 with the advent of the moral majority. And what happened there was Christians were really distraught about what was going on in our country and we were looking for leaders in our country to try and bring us back to where we had been. And we thought in 76, Jimmy Carter was our guy. Do you guys know why we thought he was our guy? Because he, he was a born-again Christian. But then he had a different view on ERA and abortion and all of a sudden he's maybe not our guy. What we really need is we need a party to align itself with our values. And so the moral majority was started for the 1980 election cycle, and Reagan was willing to play ball. And between 79 and 84, over 5 million Christians were registered to vote into the Republican Party. That's the rise of the religious right. It began kind of right there. Up until then, it was a little bit more balanced. And I'm an independent. I usually vote semi-Republican when I vote. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. Um... And there's a lot of good in every movement. But just like there was good and bad in the social gospel movement, there's good and bad in the moral majority movement. And what happens is we begin to make everything about morality. And, and the question quickly becomes, well, whose morality? Well, our morality. And every non-Christian is like, well, your morality isn't my morality. And then all of a sudden it's a battle and we're going to lobby our congressman. We're going to work to get our leaders in. And then we're going we're gonna, to kind of do this dance and in that whole dance we're the moral ones which makes you the immoral ones and we begin to see our goodness being tied up with morality and righteousness what this talks about and how Christians should live in the New Testament righteousness begins to mean personal purity and we, be we begin to become a little bit pharisaical and we lose sight of some of what righteousness really meant, which was this harmony that should exist, not just morality and justice that's necessarily tied up with this, which means it's not just about my own personal purity, but my ability to get outside of myself. Because I can be selfish and care about my personal purity at the same time. Does that make sense? Have I made anyone leave yet? So let's wrap this up. Justice, morality, righteousness, these are all good things that put us into a state of right relationship with God and others where shalom and flourishing and goodness can happen. And it's bent and it's broken, this world is. And guess what? We're messy people because we're broken people. And what do messy people do? Messy people do messed up things. And God has entered into this and said, you messed up people, I'm going to show you grace because I am a loving God and I will overlook all these offenses and my grace will make you just. And he comes into this mess and he, he doesn't condemn or judge. He, he gives grace 
in Christ Jesus. And then he calls us into this and says, now, as I have done for you, I've forgiven you so much. Now, in your love for me and in, in your joy, you can go out and what? Forgive messy people for doing messed up things. If this church were to walk around town not only being concerned with our personal purity, but realizing we want to be filled with joy because we've been graced by a loving God and that we can go around and overlook an offense and smile and be filled, I mean filled with joy. And when somebody injures us, we take a deep breath, <laughs> take a time out, whatever we need to do, and we work hard, we, we wrestle with God to give us the strength to go back and say, forgive you. I know you don't deserve it. And I know you messed up. I know I'm hurt from it. It's okay. I, I forgive you. I want the relationship more than I want to inflict pain and retribution on you. Let me, let me, let me help you back up here with me. If we as a church walked around town trying to do that, even if we did it poorly, do you know what would happen in this town? You know, what, you know what would happen to who knows what? Like, I'm a little bit idealistic. I planted this church because I, I, I was dreaming really big dreams. A group of us were. I didn't plant it myself. It was a group of us. And we were like, man, if God really is as big as he is, and we really sell out to that, and he promises that, that his power can do these amazing things, what if instead of being the people that always listen to these great God stories, we hop on the magic carpet ride and someday we're looking around us and going, we get to tell the God stories. We're showing up and, and people want us to get on stage and talk about what we've seen and experienced of the power of God moving through us and in our community and in our relationship and in our marriages and our businesses. And, um, next week, let's show up with the combat boots on, ready to do some hard work. And we're we're going to have to wrestle with forgiving people. But let's get excited about what can happen when we understand the power of grace in our own life and how that can work out in others' lives. Let's pray. Father, we commit today to you. We are hungry. We're in pain. We're suffering. We're alone. And we bump up against the mystery of not always being aware of your presence or knowing how you would speak into our experience. It's hard. It's not easy, God. And I know you care and I know you love us. And I just pray that we would just sit on our knees. We'd seek you out. Because if we seek, you've promised, uh, we'll find that, that if we draw close to you, you will draw close to us. And so we just claim that promise. And I pray for this church that we would just chase after you so that we would experience your grace. We would have you speak a fresh word into our life and our, our context and our relationships. And that you would power us up to go out and shine and be a light. And that our good works would bring praise to our Father in heaven. Because it's a reflection of, of you that we're showing people.